You're listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your host. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey listeners, it's Lauren Lee Chen. Thanks for tuning into the show. Aaron, Joshua, and I are excited to talk about the Philadelphia 76ers today, a team that in each of the last two seasons didn't win a single game before December. That trend has not changed yet this year, as they are currently 0-4 as of our taping. Still, there seems to be a change in sentiment around the team and its fans and a real sense of optimism for this season. Our guest, Jake Fisher, a writer for SB Nation's Liberty Ballers, is joining us today to talk about how, for the first time in a while, Sixers fans are excited about watching this team. Jake actually has something in common, too, with our other two hosts, Aaron and Joshua. Like them, he's also a twin. Let's get this show going. Hey, Jake. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, it's great to have you on. It's probably an understatement to say that covering the Sixers has been a little bit trying these past few years, but this year, at least, it seems like the tide's changing. You had the highly anticipated debuts of rookies Joel Embiid and Dario Saric. And even though the Sixers are winless in their first four games, how would you describe the atmosphere around this team and the Sixers fan base? Oh, it, it's a complete 180 from the last couple of years. Like you said, I mean, there's still the, the good-hearted humor of, oh, I wonder which new way we'll find out this team can uh, can lose a game tonight. But at the same time, there, there's an optimism now. I think that fans truly have thought, at least in these first four games, that the team has a shot at winning every night just because Embiid's out on the floor. So that's clearly a dramatic shift from years past. Obviously, there's still it's a cautious optimism, but the fact that there's still that level of hope is is a pretty stark difference from years past. Yeah, the big difference, at least when Joel Embiid's on the court, is that the Sixers have actually been pretty fun to watch when he's been playing, and it seems like he showcases new skills every single time you see him. One thing we notice is that at Kansas, he only attempted a total of five three-pointers, but this season so far, he's shown to be at least a willing distance shooter and a relatively capable one from at least for a center. Are there any other skills he has in his back pocket just waiting to display? And also, where do you think he has the most room to grow for his skills. I don't think he's like, has any tricks up his sleeve that is yet to, to display yet. But um, it's just going back to his days of camps, you heard coming out of their practices from their coaching staff that every, every day he would just pick up something new in practice. So he's only 22 years old. He's only been playing basketball for like six or seven years. And he spent the last two years hurt. So the fact that he already can extend his range, to the three point line, put the ball on the floor finish with both hands on the basket over Bill's shoulders. He can pass pretty well. We didn't really see that the first two games against the Magic. I, I believe he had four assists, and he had a couple that probably should have been full assists that uh, players only got fouled on or didn't finish. He's got the passing down. I think what we really need to see, the next progression, at least this year, is him being more decisive when he catches the ball 
at the top of the key. When when he's not just popping the shot immediately off of pick and pops, he kind of doesn't look like he knows what to do with the ball on the floor. He knows he has the moves, and sometimes he can make a pretty good read on the defense. But like that, going back to that Magic game, which was the last game he played, in the final, final seconds, he caught the ball at the top of the key and, and just fumbled it away because he didn't exactly have the strategy of how to attack the defense. So that's going to be the next logical step. And that's just going to come with time and getting reps and, and watching film. Yeah, I think when you watch him, it is kind of evident that he hasn't been playing for a very long time. You can see the gears turning in his head, where to go with the ball or how the play is going to develop. And once that gets more second nature for him, I think you're going to see another big step in his game. And it seems like he's improving in that every game. As you said, you already saw the progression from the first two games to the third that he played. But even still, it seems like he's exceeded almost all expectations that we had for him going in. Yeah, he's already so good. Like, it's incredible. As much as as he has to grow, he's averaging a double-double in 24 minutes a game. Like, that's insane. Yeah, his per 36 numbers are insane. He seems like pretty far ahead of the crowd for Rookie of the Year right now. And again, it seems like the Sixers are a different team when he's on the floor. Off the court as well, he's been great to follow. He's amazing on social media. Always great for funny quotes <laughs> there. He has a ton of swagger. He nicknamed himself the process, much to the to the delight of a lot of Sixers fans. Is it refreshing just to have that sort of likable guy around the team for the fan base and that he has the skills to back up his swagger? Absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest criticisms of Sam Hankey's rebuild was that he was just plugging away with assets and roster turnover and hiding behind a calculator. And it was not basketball related and it was just fall analytics. But the fact that this team now has a personable face who can stand in front of reporters or fans at the beach bash in August and actually be a walking, talking, breathing product of this scheme. And if, and you, you compound that with the fact that he's absurdly talented it's the pillar this team needed to pivot towards true contention, let alone respectability. So it's it's you're, you hit the nail on the head. Like the fact that he is good and is as talented as he is personable is just the perfect recipe. I know you're probably tired of this question by now, Jake. But do you have any concerns with the glut of similar bigs right now? It hasn't really been a problem since Nerlens Noel's been out and Embiid and Okafor are on minutes and game restrictions. But what happens when Okafor is further removed from the March knee surgery, or Embiid's play demands more minutes, or Noel returns, or all three happen at the same time? I think the biggest issue is what you didn't mention, which is the fact that it's very obvious that Nerlens Noel does not want to be in Philadelphia anymore, regardless of the talent level and the health statuses of the three guys. He's made it very clear, either it's him or it's his agent. Someone in that camp does not want him to be there, and I honestly don't expect him to ever play a game for the Sixers again. The procedure that he had on his knee seems like something that pretty much every NBA player could undergo. It was a 10-minute long knee procedure, and he is now rehabbing in Alabama. So to me, it smelled really, really, really a lot like a procedure – and a rehab plan that just got him away from the facility. There's been many, many whispers about character issues 
revolving him dating back to the draft. Um, I've never seen that. My interactions with him have always been that he's very down to earth, uh, upbeat, positive guy. His teammates seem to like playing with him uh, the last couple of years. And he seemed to be a person that really wanted to be a part of building a winner in Philadelphia. I don't know what flipped the switch, but sometime in August, him and his agents decided that he needed to get out of there. So I think that's I think that's going to be the ultimate conclusion. As much as I think that he's a more valuable piece next to uh, Joel Embiid, and just he's a better basketball player than Joel Okafor in general. I mean, he watched the Hornets game last night. Okafor was abominable defensively. Forget what he can do offensively. He sits back on the block going to cover pick and rolls. Like He has no idea how to play modern NBA defense. So that's going to be an issue moving forward for sure, the compatibility of Okafor and B, because I don't think they can play well together. And that's going to be the pairing that you absolutely have to evaluate because I don't think Nerlens Noel is going to ever play a game for the Sixers again. Forgetting about Noel for a minute, do you think that Embiid and Okafor for the rest of the season will probably just not be in at the same time for the most part and just split minutes? I mean, they've clearly committed to working on a frontcourt pairing of Dario Sarge and Joel Embiid. That's been their starting lineup every time Embiid's been active so far this season. And they just acquired Ersan Ilyasova to apparently stretch the floor for those guys. So... I would not be surprised if you see a rotation pretty much come into form over the next couple of weeks where Ilyasova plays the Dario Sarge for Jalil Okafor. And those two guys pretty much had their frontcourt pairings locked down for the for the near future. Here. That's that's what I, I, I'm sure they'll experiment with Okafor and beat in spurts, like two, three minutes here and there. But the majority of the time you're going to see one of them on the floor with one of Dario Sarge and one of Ersan Ilyasova there as well. Speaking of Dario Sarge, how far along is he? He seems to be struggling in some dimensions, especially shooting. But in other ways, he's shown glimpses that he could turn out to be a pretty good player. What do you think the biggest things are that he needs to work on and adjust to? He had a pretty good shooting night against the Magic on, I guess that was Tuesday. But other than that, yeah, he has not really found the consistent range from the NBA three-point line. He still looks like he's... Taking it takes a lot of energy for him to get the ball to the to the rim from the NBA line. He's got a little bit of, too much of a wind up on his form, but when he has time, he's been able to get it off and he's been able to make it. So he's got he's got to be able to quicken that release and make it more of a natural, smooth progression from the catch to the to the release. Defensively, he's just he's really a step behind right now. That's that's the biggest flaw. I mean, most the average fan won't see that, but. And you could really see against Charlotte with some back cuts and stuff like that. And, and it doesn't make sense because he really sees the game so well on the offensive. And that's been the most obvious transition so far. He can make intrinsic reads on the defense, even like forget the behind the back or no look passes. Like he just makes the correct um, move with the ball, whether it's attacking a closeout or swinging it to the weak side when that's necessary in the flow of the offense. So I think the shooting form and just, Getting up to speed defensively is going to be the big key for him the rest of the year. I mean, he's he's got the size for the four. They would love for him to play the three. So they are absolutely going to try to have to work on his foot speed there. Yes, Dario Sarge definitely is another player who's exciting to watch progress. With the team signing Gerald Henderson, Bayless, and acquiring Ilyasova, do you think there's more focus on winning now, even though the playoffs are likely not within reach. They finished dead last in offensive efficiency each of the past three seasons. 
You think with <laughs> these guys, they could finally get out of the last? Maybe. I mean, Bede's is so good that his, his usage rate is insane right now. It'll probably settle around 30%, I'd imagine. So, I mean, if if one out of every three trips down the floor with Embiid on the court, he's getting a shot. It's probably going to be a far more efficient offense than we've seen in the past. But they're going to be a bottom five team down there for sure. Like, that's not even close. They're obviously going to try to try to win games, but I don't know if they're going to be doing anything much more differently than years past on the floor. They obviously have... A little bit more talent this year with Sergio Rodriguez coming over from Spain and adding Gerald Henderson and Jared Bayless hasn't suited up yet, but those guys are major upgrades on the at the point guard spot and on the wing. So you'd imagine that that would make a, a big step forward just having more of a semblance of an actual legitimate offense, but I don't know how much that's actually really going to pay dividends in terms of in terms of victories. We saw the Thunder game and the one against the Magic as well. Is right now one of the main things in moving forward, just learning how to close in those tight games and and not blowing those big leads if they're fortunate enough to build those in the first place? I think actually in the Magic game, they played pretty well offensively. The the results weren't there. Robert Covington missed a wide open three. Embiid missed about a 12-foot fadeaway jump shot. Uh, Covington missed a layup that Embiid found him on. And B made a great move on Bismack Biombo, but his his foot slipped and he traveled. So they got pretty good looks down the stretch. So I don't think Brett Brown has a problem actually designing crunch time offense. They just got to be able to convert. And with this team right now, like we like I just mentioned about the talent level, it's going to be a slow grind getting up there. I, I think you're going to see them blow a lot of leads late. Um, yeah, that's just that's just the way it is. I, and I think that makes sense. That's a mark of a, a young and inexperienced team. And really, they are still in rebuild mode. I'll get more to that in a second. But I want to ask you about the Ilyasova trade. They got more experienced. They traded a 22-and-a-half-year-old in Jeremy Grant, who a lot of people liked. He was well-liked in the locker room, from what I've read. Just a high-energy player. But um, they added Ilyasova, the shooter. How would you assess the trade? My thoughts are like pretty much the equivalent of the shrug emoji. I mean, <laughs> it's like, sure, Jeremy Grant is like a promising, tantalizing prospect, but does he really do anything exceptionally well in the NBA besides block shots at his position? Not really. He shot the ball really well from the corners as a rookie. His shot looked decent in the preseason and, and in the early goings here, but it definitely didn't show enough to convince you he's got a legitimate shot at being uh, an offensive weapon at some point. By weapon, I mean like someone who is actually a threat to do something. So I don't know if he really gave up a lot in him. Plus, Ilya Soba should be able to stretch the floor. And like in theory, he should help create space for Okafor and Embiid to work inside. And he's an expiring contract. So if it doesn't work out, you can let him go this year and, and, and wipe your hands clean. And Jeremy Grant's contract is, is expiring soon too. I, I believe it might be after this year. So, yeah. If you weren't if you weren't planning on keeping him long term, you get an opportunity to take a look at Ilyasova. And the Sixers got a top twenty protected pick from the Thunder for twenty twenty. Which, if the Thunder continue to build around this core they have now, they've looked pretty great to start the year. I mean, Westbrook is. An inferno and Oladipo, eh, we'll, we'll see how he plays alongside him. But the Sabonis addition and 
Steven Adams is playing out of his mind. So that pick looks like it has a chance to convey. Obviously, it's four years away, but I think it wasn't a bad move. It wasn't a great move, but it was definitely a good move. Yeah, it's it still clearly signals at least a little bit of a change in approach or just a continuation of, of where they were going to be at this point in the process. Grant, like I said, is a young guy that they traded. As Joshua's question mentioned earlier, they added these guys, these veterans like Gerald Henderson, Jared Bayless. And a lot has been made of the word tanking. I think a lot of casual fans don't understand it. And I think it, it's often misused. They're still clearly rebuilding. Brian Coangelo recently was quoted as saying, not a chance that they would tank this year. But you can, I think, make a, a decent argument that they're still tanking. They're trying to win. The players always try to win, obviously. The coach, mm-hmm. Brett Brown, tries to win. But they're clearly not ready yet to make the playoffs with this young roster. And they won't be disappointed if they don't. But can you just explain to me about the logic behind Coangelo's pitch to the public and the media <laughs> that they're done tanking? I like that phrase and pitch to the public. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's... To me, it's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, Sam Hinkie made a lot of transactional moves to pretty much prevent his team from having a good shot at winning any basketball games. You saw that last year. Before they reacquired Ishmael from the Pelicans, they went 1-30 and to start the season. So that, that was by design. I, I talked to Smith last night when the Pistons came to visit the Brooklyn Nets. Smith was expecting the Sixers to, to offer him a contract last summer. He turned down... A $3 million deal from the Kings and a $1.5 million deal from the Phoenix Suns, or it could, it could be the other way around, uh, waiting for the Sixers' offer, and it never came. So he had to sign he had to sign a training camp deal with the Washington Wizards. And in the meantime, the Sixers signed Kendall Marshall, who I definitely knew back in July was not going to be ready for the first 25, 30 games of the year. Sam Hankey said on record that they – their medical staff had him ready to go for training camp or October 1st. And Tony Rowan was also hurt. They literally entered that year without a point guard. So that was by design. Brett Brown and his, and his players, like you said, were always going to try and win. But Sam Hinkie strategically built the roster in a way that it was virtually impossible to win every single night. Yeah, That's not the case anymore, um, obviously, with the signings of – and that's not an indictment of Hinky at all. I personally think it was an ingenious strategy. I think if they don't take Jalil Okafor, which I believe was an ownership decision, not a Sam Hinky decision, and they had someone else like a Justice Winslow right now, people always commonly say Christos Porzingis. I don't know if they would have taken him on there. But if they had a Justice Winslow, for example, they're obviously much more further along with compatible pieces than having Okafor in the mix. I think Nerlens Noel well is very happy. But the, the, the big stark difference is that the, the front office is not going to be intentionally trying to make the roster worse. You started to get to my next question in that response. Sergio Rodriguez, he's a decent starting point guard. I think not one you'd want if you were a playoff team. But uh, how would you assess him? What are the pros and cons of his game? Sergio is really fun to watch. He, he's bouncy in the sense that he like bounce. He, he doesn't have bounce in like the typical NBA term where he's got a huge vertical, but he is shifty and he's quick on the balls of his feet and he's able to he's able to find holes in the defense, makes some pretty unbelievable passes. He's got a 
ridiculous handle. It's on a rope, and he can shoot the ball. It's just the reason why he's out of the league for so long is he is an absolute garbage defender. Uh, he can't keep anyone in front of him. So that's going to be a struggle. But in the meantime, he's pretty much everything this team needs in terms of uh, an offensive signal caller and, and a pilot to get them in their sets and set up their big guys and have enough of a shooting threat and ability to keep defenses honest and compliment the guys that they're trying to feed in the paint. Yeah, you said it, Jake. Sergio's presence there is definitely going to help with the outside shooting. But how critical is it for the team to improve in that area, especially to create room for guys like Embiid and Okafor in the paint and mid-range area? Um, oh, it, it's 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 very important. I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they've ranked close to or dead last in three-point shooting in many, many, many recent years. I was talking to an assistant coach on their team I guess it was the 2014-15 year where they started off 0-17. And they didn't – and when they signed – they signed Robert Covington in his first game with the Timberwolves. They won, and they won a couple games, and they were around 10 wins. And he, and they said that they didn't think they were going to win a game that, that year before the Robert Covington signing. So if Robert Covington was that valuable to that team, clearly they need much more shooting to help. But, again, like, like, like we said, Henderson – and Bayless, when he gets healthy, and Sergio Rodriguez should really help in that regard. Nick Stauskas is another guy. If he's on with his shooting, he could be a huge asset there. That's a big if. Yeah. Him and Hollis Thompson, between the two of them, who would you say is more critical to establish himself? I think it's interesting. I think Stauskas has a higher ceiling just because he does have a pretty decent handle and the athleticism to create up the bounce. But I think his floor is a lot lower than Thompson because we've seen Thompson pretty much shoot 39-40% for his entire NBA career. He's led the Sixers in three-point shooting all the last three years. So you know what you're getting with him. You don't know what you're getting with Stauskas. Obviously, that higher ceiling with Stauskas makes him a more greater potential of an asset. But at at this time, if I had to pick one to keep with the Sixers long-term, it would definitely be Hollis Thompson. I was in Sacramento covering the team for a couple months when Stauskas was there. And it's just, it's kind of frustrating because, I mean, obviously, defensively, there are a lot of liabilities there with him. And that was a question mark going in. But you never really thought that the three-point shooting wouldn't be consistently there. And from a percentage standpoint, at least, he's just been really disappointing. Do you agree with TJ McConnell's quote that a lot of it seems to have to do with confidence? And that when he's a confidence player, he's that great shooter that people know and love? Absolutely. I've talked to several mental skills coaches in the last couple of months about shooting just because Ben Simmons is shooting is a big hot button topic and he is working with a mental skills coach and I've known it from my personal days playing like when you're not when you don't think you're going to make every single shot you're not going to shoot a high percentage so you really have to have that confidence to, to, to find your stroke from deep last season we had your colleague Mike Levin on the show right after the ousting of former GM Sam Hinkey and he was <laughs> extremely upset about that decision by the Sixers I organization. I don't know if you or the public opinion felt the same way, but granted they're 0-4 right now, so still not a strong start on the win column at least, but 
with the emergence of Embiid and the optimism around the fan base, do you think there's any vindication for Hinky in the public eye right now? Or is the shift in sentiment being attributed more to the influence of the Colangelos? No, I, I think he's absolutely being vindicated a bit. It's definitely in Philadelphia. Maybe not so people crediting him. It's really funny to read columns from some of the local papers saying the Sixers' young assets are finally coming to form without crediting Hinky for acquiring those those young players. Which I think is pretty hilarious. Nationally speaking, too, smart basketball people understand what's happening, and when if if they continue this upper trajectory, if Embiid can really find his form. Like right now, he looks like a perennial All Star. He could be. I mean, right now he looks like he's got the potential to be a top ten player in the league. The Sixers believe that they have two potential top five players in the league in Simmons and Embiid. Like they really truly believe that. If that's the case, there's going to be tons and tons and tons of hindsight praise dumped upon Hanky. And I mean, he'll he'll be back in the league soon anyway. So he he'll he'll definitely get his credit when it's due. That's 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 what I think. Speaking of Simmons, how much do you expect him to play this season? Or how much are the uh, Sixers going to save him and make sure he's healthy and just developing on schedule? So he had a three-month timetable for his injury, a Jones fracture. And that sets him up to return in like the middle of January or early January. I think we'll see him come in in January. If, if barring his rehab process, having any setbacks... If he truly rehabs 100%, takes it slow, rebuilds the, 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 the muscles that he needs to, and the bone heals, there's no reason not to play him. In fact, I think it's detrimental not to play him. The whole purpose of having this vacuum to play these young guys in is to build around these young stars and have them continue to progress. And the best way to do that is in game action at game speed. As much as you practice, as much as you work on your skills, as much as you get up shots in the gym and run through sets and work in the weight room, it doesn't matter at all if you're not on the court. And I think we'll see him play at least 25 games this year. It's been really good having you on. I'm just going to end with an open-ended question about the 76ers and what you think hasn't really been covered as much that you'd like to be covered or focused on a little bit more. I know the season's just starting, but is there a storyline that you think will likely go undetected or, or not really talked about that you think warrants more attention? To me, outside of Embiid, when I watch these games, what I'm really, really, really analyzing is every single decision Brett Brown makes. I truly believe that he has the acumen and the wherewithal to be a legitimate NBA head coach in this league. Um, I think he has the the tools to grow into possibly one of the best coaches in the league. And he, he certainly is a leader of men. Like you see it in the way he talks and his charisma and the way players play for him defensively. He's got that quality about him. But so did Scott Brooks and Mark Jackson and other guys, and they just didn't have the acumen to get it done. So when it comes to those late game situations like we talked about earlier, when it comes to seeing an opponent make a 12-0 run and, and Brett Brown calls timeout and what they come with out of that, whether it be the after timeout player, the lineup, or the couple of sets they play, they run out of that timeout. I really am paying attention to that because I think somewhere through all the mud that is his roster and the politics with the front office with Hinky and Colangelo and all the losing, I think he's a really, I think he has a chance to be a really great NBA head coach. 
Uh, it's unfortunate the first three years have started off this way for him, um, but I think the fourth year could really show some flashes of what he can become just as much as it's an opportunity for their young players to show flashes of what they can become. Thank you. We really appreciate your time and insight. Thank you, guys. Enjoy the process. <laughs> Always will.